This verse, 2 Corinthians 5.17, is perfect for thinking about Christian baptism, like what we're going to do with Ron in just a few minutes. And it's also deeply connected to what we've been learning about right now in the prophecy of Jeremiah. Last week, we read what is probably the most important passage in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter what? 31, verses 31 through 34. They are super important because they introduce the key words, a new, not that, a new covenant, right? Remember that from last week? A new covenant? Where the Bible said, Jeremiah said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. He says he's going to make a new covenant and it's going to be an unbreakable covenant, a new covenant. We talked about it last week and we celebrated it around this table, right? Because Jesus said that it was inaugurated with his blood. Now, guess what the Apostle Paul is talking about here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you have it open in front of you, you might want to turn back a page to chapter 3, verse 6, to see what Paul is here teaching the Corinthians about. He says, verse 6, God has made us competent as ministers of what? A new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. He's talking in this passage about the new covenant. It's one of the most important ideas in the Bible. In fact, the whole second part of your Bible is named after it, right? New Testament is from the Novum Testamentum, the Latin for new covenant. And I wish I had time this morning to take you through chapters 3, 4, and 5 to see Paul's whole argument. He's got this therefore in chapter 5, verse 17, which ties it all to what's around it. But I don't have that time, and Ron is itching to tell his story. But the big idea is that the new covenant has changed everything. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, reconciling God and his people. And you and I are now ambassadors of that new covenant, imploring people to be reconciled to God through the new covenant, inaugurated in Jesus' blood. The new covenant has changed everything. Just like Jeremiah foretold. And it is changing everything because when the promises of the new covenant are fully fulfilled, it will mean a brand new world. One Bible scholar I read this week said it this way about this passage. For Paul, the new covenant made possible by Christ's death is the inauguration of the new creation. The new covenant enacts the new creation. The new covenant enacts the new creation. That's why we have run to Revelation 21 for the last few Sundays. Because what God promises through Jeremiah starts to be fulfilled at the end of the exile, but it really starts to snowball when Jesus comes on the scene and dies and comes back to life. And then it isn't fully realized until Jesus comes back a second time to make it all come true in the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation. 
The new covenant enacts the new creation. Say that with me. The new covenant enacts the new creation. And that affects every single one of us who are in Christ. Listen to our verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Ron, Bean, and I looked at this passage together during his baptism class. And I think it's a great little summation of what baptism pictures. In just a moment, we're going to take Ron back here and we're going to dunk him, okay? We got Duncan Rons this morning, all right? Why? Why are we doing that? What is that a picture of? Why in the world would we do that? We're kind of used to it because we love, we love doing that, but what's that all about? It's about two big ideas, and they're both right here in this passage. In Christ and new creation. Let's look at them one at a time. The first one is in Christ. Paul says, therefore, if anyone like Ron, is in Christ, then everything else follows. See, this word, this phrase, in Christ, is one of the Apostle Paul's all-time favorite phrases. And it should be for you and me as well. In Christ. Paul uses it at least 80 times in his letters. In Christ. What's that mean? In Christ is Paul's shorthand. His shorthand description of being identified with Jesus Christ and being in union with Jesus Christ, our vital living union with Jesus. In a sister passage to this one, Romans 6, Paul says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. See, baptism symbolizes being in Christ. This morning, when Keith and I push him down under the water till the water closes over his face, he will be symbolizing that he was united with Jesus in his death. When Jesus died, Ron died. And then when he comes back up out of the water, it will symbolize that he is unified with Jesus in his resurrection life. Being baptized symbolizes being in Christ. It's actually more important to be in Christ than to symbolize it, right? Some people have gone through the symbol without actually being united to Christ in reality. But if you are united with Christ in reality, you should also symbolize it. Are you in Christ? You either are or you're not. This is a binary choice. You are either in Christ or out of Christ. Now there may be some confusion on our side of things about which we are, but it is either or. We come into Christ through faith. We come into Christ by asking Christ to come into us. And our brother Ron has recently done that. I'll let him tell that part of his story. But he was outside of Christ, and he came into Christ. Just like he's outside of the water right now, but he will soon enter it. How about you? 
Are you in Christ? It is my privilege as a minister of the new covenant to invite you, to implore you, to be reconciled to God. Look at what Paul says next in the next few verses. Verse 18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As you step out of this building this morning, you're going out into the world as an ambassador of Christ. We are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That's the cross. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a phrase. In him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. You and I, if we're in Christ, have become the righteousness of God. Now, if you're not yet in Christ, you're outside of the righteousness of God. You're unrighteous before him, and you're in grave danger. And I implore you to be reconciled to him through the new covenant. But if you are in Christ, you're the very righteousness of God. Let me ask you another question. Those of you who you know you're in Christ, have you gone public with that? And symbolized it in the way that Jesus commanded his followers to symbolize it? Ron is a fairly new Christian, and he's stepping out in faith to get baptized. Have you been baptized? Have you said to the world, I am in Christ? Christian baptism is for all Christians. It's not just something you do if you feel like it. Jesus says that we should baptize all disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And that includes you and me. It changes how we look at each other, doesn't it? In this section, Paul is saying that he treats people differently when he knows that they are in Christ or not. Look back up at verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We don't know them like we used to. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. We think about him differently now on this side of the cross. So, of course, we think differently about anybody who is in Christ. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. See, we treat Ron differently now because he is no longer outside of Christ, but inside. He's one of us. He is family. We're in Christ together. I'm sure Ron is a little nervous to tell his story today. T is going, yep, yep, he is. Because he doesn't know us very well, and we don't know him very well yet. But we don't regard him like we used to. He's part of the family now. He's in Christ. Ron, you're with family here. Welcome to the family. 
Because of the new covenant, you're in Christ. And because you're in Christ, you're a new creation. That's the second big idea in verse 17. A new creation. Listen to verse 17 again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Now the Greek lying behind that is a little more ambiguous. It's more like this. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. That's kind of more like a literal translation. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. It might mean that this person is a new creation. God has done a work of creating something new inside of him. I believe that's true. That's that's what's going on here. But it might mean something bigger than that. If anyone comes into Christ, there is a sign of the new creation. Remember, new covenant enacts new creation. The updated 2011 NIV says it this way. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Boom. New creation. Look. New creation. Every time we look at a new Christian, we see the new covenant enacting the new creation. We are looking at a foretaste of Revelation 21 and 22. If you're a Christian, turn to the person next to you and tell them, I am a foretaste of Revelation 21 and 22. I, yeah, do it. Is that too much of a mouthful? I am a foretaste of Revelation 21 and 22. You're looking at a foretaste of Revelation. Have you read Revelation 21 and 22? Do you see what this world is coming to? Do you see where we're headed? Do you see what the post-apocalyptic world actually is? Revelation 21 and 22. What is on the way? The new creation. When you look at a new Christian you see a foretaste of the new creation. And that's how we should think about each other. When you come to church on Sunday morning and you see other Christians, you say, there's a foretaste of Revelation 21 and 22. There's a foretaste of Revelation 21 and 22. The new creation is a foretaste, a new creation is a foretaste of the new creation because of the new covenant. Verse 17, a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Do you notice that exclamation point at the end of that verse? I think that is signifying the underlying Greek word idu, which means, check this out. Look. The old King James word is what? Anybody got that one? Behold, right? Behold, maybe we should say that. Behold, you're looking at a foretaste of the new creation. Behold, here it is. This is amazing. The old is gone. The new has come. Now, that might sound like a new Christian is not at all like they used to be. They're perfect. They never sin. They have arrived. The the old has gone. The new has come, period. Well, if that's true, then Ron should not be baptized because he's not perfect yet. And I should not be involved in baptizing him either because I am not perfect yet. But I don't think that's what Paul is saying. Paul knows that we are not yet what we will be one day. He wasn't what he would one day be. But he does know that a real change has occurred 
A new birth has happened inside of us. Something has been created in our hearts. And that's exactly what the new covenant promised, wasn't it? Remember what we read last week in Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34? He said this, This is the new covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord. Because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. That's the new covenant, and it describes the new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Not just the old covenant, but the new heart, the new mind. A new knowledge of God, a a new and deeper, closer relationship with God. A new slate, a new standing, a new forgiveness, a new righteousness. Ron, he says these words over you. I will forgive your wickedness and will remember your sins no more. New on the inside. The old is gone. The old covenant, the old slave driver of sin, the old allegiance to the prince of, the, of this world, Satan, the old penalty and position and power of sin has gone. And the new has come, a new creation. That's what Christian baptism symbolizes. That's why we do this dunking thing, to say all of that in a moment of water and wetness. It's death and new life. It's the old has gone. The new has come. I love how the New Living Translation paraphrases this. It says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. Welcome, Ron, to your new life. Christian baptism symbolizes being in Christ and being a new creation. And this is God's work. The very next words in verse 18 are, All this is from God. God is the one who includes us in Christ through faith. God is the one who creates a new creation in us that says goodbye to the old and in with the new. And in our response to God's work is simply to live it out. We are to believe that we are in Christ with all the blessings and benefits and privileges that go along with that. And we're to live as new creations. New lives that are changed because of the new covenant at work in our hearts. In the first few centuries of the Christian church, baptismal candidates did this very dramatically. I was reading uh, this week about what baptism was like in the first few centuries. When the time for baptism arrived, the candidate would be called upon to renounce the devil and all his pomp. Facing westward, the direction in which the sun went down, he would exclaim, I renounce thee, O Satan, and all thy works. And then he would deliberately spit three times in the direction of darkness. I'm not going to ask you to spit this morning, Ron. Signifying, I'm not going to, he says. Signifying a complete break with the power of evil and all their former claim on his life. Next, turning towards the sunrise, he would say, And I embrace thee, O Lord Jesus Christ. And this would be followed by immersion. The old is gone. The new has come. 